The Lord be with you. And also with you. It's good to be with you again this morning. Uh, Just some announcements before we pray and get into the topic of the day. Some of you have been asking, are you you just teaching the whole class from now on? And that's not the case. I will be... um, Next week, we will welcome, uh, actually, Catherine Ophart will be coming and teaching uh, as a seminarian, right? She's got to get her feet wet and do some Sunday school as well as preaching, as she's done already here before. Uh, And next week, so this week, we're talking about the person of Jesus. What's Jesus all about? Who is Jesus? Why is Jesus important? Those are some of the questions we'll tackle today. And right in the middle of that, Catherine's going to come and speak about um, Christ in context. And since she has spent now well over a year in Mexico, and um, because of her, her um, s- several different things, she's going to speak about uh, how Christ is understood and interpreted differently around the world, particularly in a Latin American context, and, and more than that as well. So um, I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing her speak about those things. Then at the week after that, I come back for another few weeks, uh, wrapping up uh, are this discussion on Jesus with a, a lengthy discussion on atonement. What is atonement all about? What does the work of Jesus' um, crucifixion do for us? How does it work? What is it all about? Then the following weeks, we'll be speaking on the Holy Spirit, again, me. And then the, f- the following five weeks, we'll welcome, for the first time, Matt Skolnick will be coming and teaching. Uh, really looking forward to that. So uh, we've got a lot more coming Uh, a lot to cover today. So before we jump into this work, let us pray. Almighty and gracious God, we give you thanks for the gift of this day, for another opportunity to study your word and consider all the ways that you have loved us and revealed yourself to us. Reveal yourself again to us today in in the lessons and the, the, the words that you have for us. Open our hearts to receive of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so as promised, today we are, you should have, each of you should have one of these, and you should also have a hymnal. Yeah? Okay. I don't think we're actually singing today, but we will need the hymnal, and we'll see a little, a little later why that is. Um, so first, just um, some opening questions. Uh, who is Jesus? Do you need to figure this out at tables? I can give you table time if you want. Okay, I'll give you. <laughs> but I actually do. I want you to try if somebody, I know this is, I keep going to this, this again, but imagine somebody from another planet comes and, and has never heard of, of who Jesus is and says, who is this Jesus guy you're all so obsessed about? And you keep talking about him. Who is this guy? What would you say? How would you answer this Martian? Um, so 
In, in a few words, in a sentence, if you had, you know, you're on an elevator. Let's, let's make this even crazier. You're on an elevator with a Martian, and the Martian says, who is this Jesus? And you're like three floors away from getting off, and you're like, okay. What is your elevator speech on who is Jesus? Okay? So take a few minutes and actually think this through. I really actually do want you to. I know I'm joking. I was, I was joking before. But take a few minutes at tables um, and figure out what would you say if given... 15 to 30 seconds on who is Jesus. They're pretty smart Martians. Yeah. They know English. As this table already inquired, they do speak English. They listen to radio and they watch TV. They don't listen to podcasts. They should. I'm with you. Okay, now you've had a little while to figure out and discuss at table, mull it over. You meet a Martian. This table went to Pluto, so we had a Plutonian, a Martian, whatever species of alien in an elevator. You've got three floors to go before you're off, and he says, who is this Jesus fella? And you answer, do you know who God is? Ooh, I like that. Okay. Because he's with us. Do you know who God is? Because he's with us. Hard to explain who the Son is if you don't know who God is. Okay. 
God in human form. God in human form. Okay. Anybody else? Emmanuel, which is actually, it's kind of cheating because that's, that's well, multiple words in one. Words, <laughs> no, no, no. I love the old <laughs> words, right? With, with us, God. Yeah, right? And also, Great. I just have to say, if you really like this idea about talking to Martians, and oh. you need to read C.S. Lewis's trilogy. Oh, yeah. The Martian that's trilogy? that's what happens there. He has Perfect. to explain to another planet oh, what see? happened on our planet. I didn't even know that. The first one's that. called Out of the Silent Planet by C.S. Lewis. Okay. I'll add it to my reading list. Oh my Very God. good. There you go. Read it on the elevator. <laughs> Speed read it on the elevator. Do you guys remember the, um, My Stepmother's an Alien, that terrible movie from the late 80s? Does anybody remember this? It had Dan Aykroyd in it. And the, the mother, who's this alien... Whenever I was a kid and they asked me, what, what do you want your superpower to be? I always went back to this movie because she had this weird gift and this weird power where she would put her arm in a book. Nobody's ever seen this movie. She would put her arm in a book and absorb the whole thing. I thought it was the coolest thing. If I had that superpower, whew, that would be great. Yeah. Say again. Yeah, right? How easy that would have been. So, Okay. So, yeah, I don't know that we, any, any alien would absorb the whole of the book in an elevator, unless they're from that movie, but nobody else gets it but me. Okay, so who is Jesus? So far we have said Jesus is God with us, Emmanuel, God in human form. Okay, so it's a good start. But again, the alien says, well, what is God? Maybe they have no conception of God. We're not going to go back and do this. But imagine if. This is a hard thing, right? Because already when you explain Jesus, there's another large concept that the person has to understand. Thank you, Dan. Before they understand who Jesus is. You can't just say, oh, he's God. Or he's the son of God. Or he's God in human form. Because there's this sense of, I I don't have a, a basis of understanding what that means. So, um, while we, like fish swimming in the ocean, don't, who don't know we're in water, right? Uh, we talk about Jesus, we say, oh, he's God, he's God in the flesh. What does that really mean? This is the work of Christology, of figuring out who Jesus is. So, Christology is the doctrine of the person of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus? Um, another word you, that's closely associated with this is soteriology, there on the, your paper, that, which is the doctrine of Jesus' saving work. So it's not, it's not just that Jesus is an interesting person, right? People outside the church say, oh, what a prophet, what a, what a teacher, what a great guy Jesus, is, Jesus was. Oh, I love that Sermon on the Mount. Isn't that great? It's not just that Jesus was a man, who had good things to say, there's this, there's this sense that he's much more than that, right? Son of God. He is God. And that what Jesus comes to do and what Jesus teaches us saves us. It changes everything. So what is that all about? Uh, I want to turn your attention to that, those little uh, those sentences there right at the top. Uh, theological reflection on any topic is Christian, 
to the extent that it recognizes the centrality of Jesus Christ and the salvation he brings. Christology is not the whole of Christian doctrine, but it is the point from which all else is illumined. So this is a big deal, right? Because a lot of the things we've talked about this year, you could just as easily go down to Temple Israel and talk about. This is not something they're talking about down there. But this also illuminates everything else that we've been talking about all year, right? And this isn't, of course, the first time I've mentioned Jesus in this class, right? We've been talking about Jesus all along. But at various points, we focus in on creation, right? Uh, and, and the stories of, you know, of theodicy. And uh, along the way, we may focus in on other things, realizing that Jesus, because we are Christians, Jesus is helping us to understand it all. Two weeks ago, we talked about anthropology. What does it mean to be human? And, and we had that beautiful quote from John Calvin that says that hum, um, anthropology and theology are always intertwined, right? We cannot understand one without the other. You can't just imagine you're not a human and study theology, and you can't study uh, humanity without understanding God, right? So we are inter intertwined. And at the uh, at the intersection of humanity and divinity, of course, is Jesus. So to understand everything, we have to understand Christ. And I want you to take a look at this. This is an, uh, an icon. This is from, this is Christus Pantocrator, um, the ruler over all, the almighty. And this is uh, from Sinai. And what I want you to notice here uh, as you look very closely into his face, look at his eyes. Look very closely at the eyes. What do you notice? It's a long pupil. Say again. Blown. Oh, I misheard. Okay, blown pupil. Anybody else? That's what, that's what Beth says. Blown. Okay. Okay. If you look really closely, look at the rest of that side of the face. Compare. Is this, you know how they talk about uh, beauty as being so, someone is very symmetrical. There's all the geometry and that's how the human brain perceives beauty. Is this, a, is this a bad artist who's just not really good at symmetry? Or is there something going more going on here? Because look at the cheekbones. Look at the mustache. Say again. There's some asymmetry here, right? Okay, ears aren't at the same level. Edith? Oh, look at that. You're so right. Look at that. Cool. I had not done that before. I love that. Okay, so this is a visual representation of theology. This is visualized theology, right? As we will talk about, we've talked about before, we'll talk about again in uh, great depth today, about how Jesus is both God and man. There are these two natures of Christ, and this artist, whoever this person was all those hundreds of years ago who, who uh, painted this, understanding that, wanted to visualize 
the two natures of Christ and so did this. And this is not the only one of its kind, right? If you look at other icons of Jesus, sometimes they're perfectly symmetrical and sometimes there's this asymmetry that you're thinking, what's going on here? And this, that's why the person wants to visualize that, uh, that, that Jesus is, uh, has these two natures, divine and human. Okay, so we've been um, meditating on what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be human? What is, uh, who is Jesus? What does Jesus mean to us? Um, we have these answers, but we actually have another answer here. We're not singing today. Some of you are a little concerned. Uh, open up to page 34 of the purple hymnal before you and let us stand in body. No, we're not doing that. Not right now. Not right now. At least once a month, we say the Nicene Creed, right? So whenever words fail me, this is a little, this is a little um, hint for the next time you're in an elevator with a Martian. Whenever words fail me, I'm like, uh, 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 I go to a creed, right? Because they are a really good summary of what we believe. Uh, and so we often look at the Apostles' Creed, right? We do that almost every week. Nicene Creed a little less so. But the Nicene Creed is the older. The universal creed that Protestants, Catholics, and Orthodox all confess, and there's little asterisks on that. There's one little line the Orthodox don't because we in the West thought, let's add one line and not tell the rest of the people, and they got upset. Anyway, that's a different story. But I want you to look at the paragraphs here. Paragraph one, we believe in one God. Paragraph two, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ. Paragraph three, we believe in the Holy Spirit. And then very quickly, we move on from the Holy Spirit, one holy Catholic church, right? It's all the et cetera, et cetera, all the rest of the stuff we believe. That it doesn't really fit neatly in paragraphs. The biggest chunk of this is, is Jesus, right? So if you had an elevator speech, I would suggest it be this. So let's break this down. Um, how about we do, yeah, how about we do men, women, men, women, everybody, right? We've got five paragraphs there. Let's read this together. Just a section on Jesus Christ. So men, women, men, women, everybody together. So men, here we go. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only son of God, eternally begotten of the father, God from God light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, through him all things were made. Ladies? Men. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, he suffered death and was buried. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. Amen. Okay. So this is one of the most ancient, the, the most ancient summations of what we believe as the whole church, and that one little asterisk is not in this paragraph, right? 
Um, it's in the next paragraph. So East, West, Orthodox, Protestant, Catholic, we all affirm those words as core to what we believe about the person and the work of Jesus. Okay. Let's move on to... Sure. Oh, sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. Sure. I, I just think... We can read what we have written or other people have written, but what did Jesus say? I think that's oh, sure. a great addition. Absolutely. All the I am statements from John are absolutely important. Who is Jesus? Yeah, and I, I don't, uh, I'm not trying to not go there, but in limited time, um, yeah, we absolutely affirm all those images as, as valid and as uh, important images that the church um, peers through to see who Jesus is. Um, but in the early church and, and in the centuries since Jesus, those, those images have held on, but trying to figure out what is uns, what Scripture doesn't say or what Scripture hints at but may not fully develop uh, or where there's tension between certain passages, that's the work of Christology, and that's what we're really trying to delve into here today. Um, and in the early centuries of the church, um, they had hot-button issues, right? You could probably tell me all the hot-button issues of the church today. We're not going to talk about them today, thanks be to God. But, but if I were in a church 1,700 years ago talking about these things, there would be some controversy. People would be up in arms. People would be probably throwing me out or throwing somebody else out because this at this time... After scriptures have been written, after the, the, the New Testament has come codified, the whole, whole of the Holy Scripture is together, everyone is starting to disagree and say, well, look at that verse, look at that verse, what do you think about this? And how do we understand who Jesus is and what he does? So there are some problems. And in our time, we have to come to grips with these, saying, are these really all that important? Uh, do they matter anymore? So let's delve into these. Question, problem number one that we have to deal with is how do we make sense of the ancient Christological creeds? Just the one that we read there. The Nicene Creed speaks of God, son of the Son of God as being of one substance with the Father. Do we know what that means? Do we talk about that regularly? When I was interviewed here, did you ask me about, do you think he's one substance or two? Right? No, those aren't hot button issues today. Those aren't things we often talk about. I've never had an interview, by the way, where they've asked about the one substance of Christ um, with God the Father. Um, the formula of Chalcedon declares Jesus is fully divine and fully human, has two natures united in one person, right? That picture up above of the two natures, without confusion or change, division or separation. You're thinking, is that really the most important thing we need to talk about? Um, back then, it absolutely was. And it still is important if we understand it, um, but let's, let's, let's continue on with um, making sense of these creeds. So critics say that the Christology of the old creeds comes close to losing sight of the reality, the concrete reality of Jesus in a maze of metaphysical speculation. Isn't that a fun phrase? So even people who disagree um, with these critics acknowledge that the creeds must be not just repeated 
but really interpreted for what they mean, not just what they say, but what they mean. So we'll come to that. I'm just, I'm laying out the problems and then we'll delve into, hopefully, some of the solutions. So then how do we also, another one of the problems of Christology is how do we make sense of essentially the historical Jesus movement, which we've talked about in here in the last two centuries, especially in the West, uh, mostly out of Europe, but also in the United States as well. There is this um, growing movement of people who are saying, uh, what, who was Jesus really, right? We ask the question, who was Jesus? Who is Jesus? Um, but this historical Jesus movement is trying to say, well, yeah, I, I understand they're the Gospels, but let's try to get behind the Gospels, behind all the theologizing, behind all of the doctrine, and say, who is Jesus? And now, you may discount the whole of the work of, of historical Jesus movement, but I say, and N.T. Wright uh, would say, that we have to, if we are honest Christians, we have to wrestle with the question of, who was Jesus, really? Because there's, there is much more, as we all read Jesus' journey a few years ago for the Lenten study, right? As we talked about, one of the, the strengths of that book was that it really pushed you beyond the page of the gospel, not in an inappropriate way, but it made you think about, you know, Jesus had ants. Oh, that's a weird thing. I've never thought about that before. You know, Jesus had cousins. He did? Well, of course he did, right? It talks about his family. There's all these things. And it's just, it's this beautiful midrashic understanding of Jesus's life beyond the page. That's a little bit of what historical Jesus is, seeks to do. Um, but uh, so Albert Schweitzer, and if you're wondering who Schweitzer is or what he looks like, as you go into the sanctuary today, look on the back wall, right? The healing window, one of those four medical missionaries, one of them is Albert Schweitzer. Um, he was a medical missionary. Also, he had three PhDs, theology, music, and medicine. And he wrote a lot on the historical Jesus, saying uh, that Jesus was an eschatological prophet whose message of the coming reign of God was strange to the modern world. Um, and there's all, the, all these people are looking and saying, looking at the whole of the New Testament and saying, who was Jesus really? If we had to summarize it, and we're looking at all these different Gospels, right? Understanding that there's some emphasis in Luke, right? On Jesus as reaching out to the outcast. And there's this emphasis in Matthew of Jesus reaching out to the Jew. And there's this, there's this, there are these differences. So how do we make sense of all this? Um, some, and so in the last few centuries, again, in this historical Jesus movement, some have said Jesus was a Jew, albeit a, quote, marginal Jew, because his message, and his message and ministry is understood within the context of first century Judaism, but he's pushing the envelope, right? He's not just a, a rabbi proclaiming the old wisdom. He's saying something very new, proclaiming the coming reign of God. Then there's also other scholars who would say Jesus was, if you had to summarize and really say who is Jesus, charismatic figure, a healer, a teacher of wisdom. That's Marcus Borg. A G, uh, Jesus is a Jewish peasant with a radical social vision. That's John Dominic Crossan. Or Jesus is an apocalyptic prophet. That's Dale Allison, who I had the pleasure of studying with at Pittsburgh. Um, so who is Jesus? We've already talked about this, and for sake of time, I'll actually uh, skip over this section, uh, except to, to summarize, how do we make sense of the 
these striking variety of pictures in the New Testament. Remember last year when we uh, delve in, dove into the Gospels, right? It was last spring. We, we talked about how each of the Gospels should not be understood as a picture of Jesus, but a portrait, a portrait, meaning that each of the evangelists painted a picture of Jesus, and maybe they used different colors, maybe they used different styles, and you could put all four next to each other, and they're still depicting the same Jesus, but they have differences in their depictions. And that's what uh, we have throughout the, throughout the Gospels, as well, even Paul and his depictions of Jesus, he paints a slightly different picture of Jesus. Again, it's the same person who's being painted, but they all emphasize different, slightly different things. So how do we make sense of this in Christology? And we've already made mention of this a little bit. Um, the sc- number four, the scandal of particularity. This is um, one of the interesting th- things that really defines Christianity in contrast to other religions of the world is that we confess that Jesus is God who came in a particular flesh at a particular time to a particular people, and that Jesus is the fullest revelation of this God whom we confess as Father. Um, And Jesus is the Son. So, the scandal of particularity can be understood in a few different ways, but, um, but the one is that there is this historical particularity. Jesus didn't come in 2020 as a uh, white American, right? Um, Jesus came over 2,000 years ago as a brown-skinned, uh, poor Jewish peasant, right, from the country, wrong side of the tracks. Um, what does that mean? But the other side of the scandal of particularity is that uh, in an interfaith context, we have to understand that um, this is a sca- this is scandalous news. You're saying you have exclusive rights to this to to God because God came to you in the person Jesus. Yeah, that's what we're saying. Right? It's a scandal. Um, so those are kind of some of the the um, challenges here. And I'll read just letter C. I found this. Um, I'd never heard of this guy before, but I liked what he wrote. Bruxy Cabby, which is a funny name. He wrote that in becoming human, God came, became particular, a specific human. Not just humanity is some generalized concept, and that creates particularity in time and space, gender and race. God became this, not that. God became a man, not a woman. God became a Jew, not a Gentile. God became an Israelite and not a Canadian. Isn't that a funny phrase? God became a poor person, not a rich person. And God became a first century person, not a 21st century person. So that also should challenge us um, because um, we see Scripture, we read Scripture through our own social standing. And Catherine will come to this a little more next week. Who are we? How do we read Scripture Um, we come to it with a certain set of preconceptions. And Jesus comes from a very different social setting than we do. And so that needs to challenge our understanding. Okay. Moving on then to principles of Christology. Um, And we will... There's just so much to cover. Um, 
Number one here, uh, this is again from Migliori now. Uh, Faith in Jesus Christ is intended, is, excuse me, is indeed a knowledge with cognitive content, but the knowledge of faith is not simply theoretical and historical knowledge, right? It's not just, as I said already, it's not just that Jesus is an is a interesting guy who said some, some good things and we should know what he said, right? It's not just that, but there is this, it's not just this head knowledge, but, but Jesus invites us on a path of, of spiritual inward transformation. It's a path of discipleship. And we, in, in that, we're not just saying, oh, he's a good, he's a good teacher, right? No, he is God with us, right? As Jane said a little while ago, reminded us that God here is with us, and God is inviting us into relationship. And um, it's not just head knowledge, although we Presbyterians love head knowledge. There's more to it than that. Uh, Number two, uh, Jesus cannot be properly understood, seen apart from the covenant of God with the people of Israel, or if the scope of his saving work is limited to certain individuals or a select group rather than reaching out to all humankind. We've talked about this a little bit um, before, but um, Jesus was Jewish, right? Jesus is still Jewish, right? It's weird when we talk about uh, tents around Jesus. uh, Sometimes we'll say Jesus was, but we really should say Jesus is, right? Because we we only talk about people who've died in the past tense, right? Jesus is alive again, so we have to use the present tense, right? So it's a strange thing. But um, we have to understand Jesus within the context of Israel, and that creates a whole nother set of um, base, knowledge base, right? Again, going to this Martian, oh, oh Jesus was a Jew. Um, oh, what's that all about? And you've got to start unpacking all these other things that the Martian probably has never heard about, right? Um, but we also have to understand that Jesus did not just come to save the Jewish people. In his lifetime, in his ministry, he focused in the, on the, uh, the, the Jews, but then he empowered the disciples to move beyond into all the world. So his ministry, mission and ministry was um, really for everyone, and his saving work was for all. So we have to understand that um, there's that, not a paradox, but a tension, that there's this particularity, historical particularity, but it's an explosion of universal scope. So yeah, Jesus was born in the first century, but you can't just be, it's not just that you're saved if you're from the first century. We still today follow Jesus, who is Lord. All these years later, there's this universal scope. <sighs> okay. Number three, the doctrines of the person and work of Christ are inseparable. So um, who is Jesus and what he has done? Those two things must be understood in relation to one another. Um, And there's a a great phrase. This is an early church uh, guy, Philip Melanchthon, um, who said, actually, that's not true. I don't have a time frame on him, but I think he's later than that. Um, Melanchthon said, to know Christ means to know his benefits. 
And it's not just, again, it's not just a head knowledge, but it's a relationship with Jesus. And what does that look like? And in knowing and having a relationship with Jesus, that's when um, we get the, we, we know his benefits. Um, we must know who he is. Uh, okay. Number four, let's skip over to the next page. Every understanding and confession of Jesus grows out of a particular situation and in the first place speaks to the particular needs and hope of that situation. Um, again, the idea is here that um, speaking into that um, particularity but universality, that even with that scandal of particularity, Jesus was born in this time and this place, the message and work of Jesus speak into everyone's life. Everyone can have hope and life, new life in Jesus, regardless of your gender, your race, your time or place, right? Um, Jesus is available and open to us all. Um, and number five, uh, I just love this. It says, the living Jesus Christ is greater than all of our confessions and creeds. He surpasses all of our theological reflection about him. So to, to um, your point earlier of what, Jesus, what does Jesus say about himself, right? He says, I am the way, the truth, the life. I am the door. I am the bread of life. All of those things are Jesus' own self-proclamations. Uh, um, self but even in the Gospel of John, John says, uh, even if I could, and I'm paraphrasing here, but uh, even if I could write everything that Jesus did and said, the book, th there wouldn't be enough room in the world to hold all the books, right? And even then, even if John did write all the books of, and, and, and fill the whole world with all the, the knowledge of who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, we still wouldn't know the entirety of who Jesus is and what Jesus does. Um, because Jesus lives even today, right? So there is this sense that we in Christology, we understand just a little itty bit of who Jesus is because God has revealed himself as Jesus to us. We only understand up into the revelation of Jesus, but we not having met Jesus in the flesh, also only have as much revelation as the New Testament gives us and as the Holy Spirit allows, right? So there's this sense that we are pushing up against boundaries and we want to know more, but this side of glory we will not know more. So uh, that last line that's underlined there on 5a, no Christology can claim to exhaust the breadth and depth of the mystery of Christ. And this is also true of the creeds of the ecumenical church, right? We just looked at the Nicene Creed. That's a, it's a good summary of Jesus, but it's reductive, right? It's not giving you everything. Um, there's a whole lot more to it. 
Um, most of the rest of this page is there for you if you want it. I will give a very quick overview to say that in the first centuries of the church, there were several ecumenical councils. The one we've heard most about and the one we actually read a document from this morning was um, Nicaea, right? In 325, that was the first council of Nicaea. There were others, um, and they tried to push against heresy. We've talked about many times in this class before about in the early church, whenever they weren't sure about what they believed, it took someone saying, well, I believe that. And you say, that's not true. In order for somebody to figure out what they actually believe. So it was, that's not orthodox. So what I believe must be. There's this sense of doctrine developed in, in contrast with or intention with some, something else that someone identifies as heresy or um, heterodoxy. So Arius um, was uh, an early, he was a heresiarch. Here's another Scrabble word. Write it down. Heresiarch, uh, which means the first one who come, came up with the heresy or the one for whom the heresy is named. Arianism comes from the name Arius. Isn't that terrible? Like he's, his name's been dragged through the mud for centuries and centuries. Um, and can rightfully so, because he um, argued that Jesus was a creature, a created creature, preeminent creature, but not the eternal son of God. Now, what if Arius came in, imagine we're stepping back in a time machine. We got all sorts of sci-fi stuff today. Um, we step in a time machine, and we're going back to Westminster Hall back around 320, right? just a few years before Nicaea. And Arius comes in and says, okay, let's talk about who Jesus was. And he said, now some people say Jesus was the eternal son of God, but that's not right. Jesus really is a really great creature, created being from God after the beginning of creation, one of the very first um, beings created. Here's Jesus. What would you think about that? Do you want a minute to think about it? How about I give you one minute? What would you say if Arius came in here and said, Jesus, not really the eternal son of God, a good creature, really excellent, top-notch in creature of God, created, but not God. What would you say? I'll give you one minute to think it over. Okay. Talk it over at tables for one minute.
You got another few seconds here. Okay. So, Arius comes in. It's the year 320. He comes in to teach Westminster Hall class and says, some people say, Jesus is the son of, eternal son of God. That can't be right. You need to believe that Jesus is just a creature. That, that makes the most sense. Just a creature, not really eternal son of God. What would you say? What was the purpose of the creature? So what? Okay, so you push back on his premise. Yeah. How do you explain the resurrection? I mean, God can do what God wants. Mm. Okay. Okay. But he's saying he's really preeminent. He's really important. God's certainly favored him. There's certainly some power of God in him. But at the core of who Jesus is, he's not, can't be the eternal son of God from the beginning of before even time began, right? Just push him back. God can do what God wants. God can do whatever. Lazarus, hey. Sounds like heresy. <laughs> Sounds like a heresy to me. Perfect. Okay. So this is the this is the kind of topic that um, this first council was called together to address, um, because Arius was getting a big following and saying Jesus wasn't really the son, eternal son of God. So Athanasius came along, and he was a fourth century theologian, and he said, the God of the gospel is defined by the act of self-giving love. And Jesus is truly the son of God, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Where have I heard that before? We just said that a little while ago, right? Right from the Nicene Creed. Those words um, come from Athanasius. And uh, we even sing those songs, right? It's, um, oh, come let us adore him, isn't it? David, I'm looking to you, phone a friend. What, 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 hymn, what carol is that in? I don't know. It's in one of those. You'll, you'll get it in a few months. Sure. Um, but the idea is Jesus is God from God. There's no difference here. There is this, this connection of substance, one substance, light from light, true God from true God. Why is he saying all those different ways? To really drive the point home. This is the same. Jesus is from the same substance. He's not different, right? Um, and... That's what the Nicene Creed really affirms, that Jesus is begotten, not made. And we think, does, does language really matter? And it does. And this comes uh, close to intersecting with Beth's point here of what, um, now I can't even find it. Oh, Athanasius, again, his state, f- famous statement was, um, God became human that we might become divine. And I said something similar to that a few weeks ago in a sermon from C.S. Lewis. But also the quote, and now I don't know where it is. Oh, it's on the next page, that's why. Um, From Gregory of Nazianzus says, that which, and this is coming into the humanity of Christ, that which he has not assumed, he cannot heal. 
right? So Jesus bridges this gap, and this is where we're going to go. And feel free to look on the rest of that page there. There's another council on there. There's a whole lot more. But looking over this whole page, Jesus is fully human, fully divine, and somehow, in a way we don't quite understand, there is this mystery that these two natures are unified, united. It's a mystery. We can't really... How can two, two natures be unified in one? And you have to be careful with language because it gets, pretty, it gets heretical pretty quickly. But um, Jesus is fully human. There's another um, group of folks in the early church that said, oh, no, Jesus was fully God, not fully human. He pretended he looked like a human. It's, it looked like he died on the cross. He didn't really die on the cross. It was all a show, and it just seemed like he was human. And the Greek word for seem is dokeo, from which we get the word docetism. So docetism is the heresy of um, saying that God, Jesus just seemed to be human, but that he was actually just God, right? But we instead confirm and uh, confess Jesus is fully human. And I'm going to run down this list. But we know all this. Some of this was in the creed. Some of this goes beyond it. Born of a woman, but without sin. Educated in the religion and culture of his people, right? That goes back to the scandal of particularity. He grew and matured physically, intellectually, and spiritually. uh, Luke affirms that in the second chapter. We know he was an itinerant preacher of the coming kingdom of God. And as human, this is what Jesus' journey was so great in helping us to remember, Jesus experienced hunger. Jesus experienced thirst. Jesus experienced fatigue. Pain, grief, all of it. His knowledge was not unlimited I don't like, it's almost a double negative there. We can say his knowledge was limited, right? And even Jesus affirms that. Well, when is the coming of the kingdom? No man knows the day or the hour, not even the son of man. But wait, aren't you the son of God? Aren't you God? What? How do you not know this? And this is where the early church, again, coming to figure out who is this Jesus and how is he fully human? How is he fully divine? But he doesn't know something? Doesn't God know everything? Jesus says, essentially, I don't know. That's not for me to know. That's only the Father. Only the Father knows that. So this is one of those moments where you, you start questioning, right? If, yeah. Um, he had real temptations. He knew both acclaim and rejection. And in the end, we know he was betrayed, arrested, humiliated, tortured, and finally crucified. So coming back to the Gregory of Nazianzus quote, that which he has not assumed, he has not healed. This is him speaking against the docetists, saying, if he was just God pretending to be human, we do not have salvation. We cannot have salvation unless he fully assumed humanity. And because we believe that he did assume humanity, then we can say he has healed us through his death and resurrection. His statement, 
It, so, so the docetists, let me back up. So the docetists were the group of people saying he, just, he was just God, he looked like man, but he wasn't really. And what I'm saying, what Gregory of Nazianzus would also say, is um, because Jesus was really fully human, then he could heal humanity. If he was just God pretending to be human, he couldn't. But he has to fully become, or in his language, assume. He assumed humanity. Um, that then he could heal humanity. So becoming human, he could heal humanity. If he didn't, he couldn't. Docetism. Or docetists? Um, that's a ooh. That's a good question. I would assume they did because these people were within the church. So, yeah, this isn't some um, arm of the uh, arm of people that are without outside of the church. These are people on the inside, saying God really seems to be, or Jesus really seems to just be human, but he's not. So I think they're within the church, so they probably have some understanding of salvation. And my guess is that Gregory of Nazianzus is saying, well, if you believe in salvation, you have to believe. He was fully human, because you can't have salvation if he's not, right? Okay. Um, and Migliori puts this a different way. In 1b, he says, for the classical Christological tradition, the hum full humanity of Jesus is the precondition of the inclusiveness of his salvation. It, he has to be human if we are to be saved. Okay. Yes? Ooh, what's the distinction between Gnosticism and docis, Docetism? Also yeah, so there's some, I mean, there are, you can be a Docetist and not be a Gnostic. Uh, and I think you can be a Gnostic and not be a Docetist. I think there's, uh, because Gnostic, there's overlap. It's like a Venn diagram, right? There's there's overlap, but it's not they're not mutually exclusive, and they're not um, totally inclusive. Um, yeah, Gnosticism is the idea that that the overarching idea is that you have to have special specific knowledge for salvation um, that is not open and available to everyone. And within that, yes, some people believe Jesus just seemed to be human. And some probably didn't. Gnosticism, in law, as a as a school of thought, is often reduced down to Gnosticism, but we should really say Gnosticisms, right? There are multiple kinds of Gnosticism. Okay, I lost my paper. There it is. Okay, let's move on to two. We've only got oh three minutes. So Jesus also is fully divine. So this is not just a man. Right? We've established that. Jesus is fully human. But we can't stop there because we have to also confess that Jesus is fully divine. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.19 says, God was in Christ reconciling, reconciling the world to himself. So this affirmation means that what Jesus does and suffers is at the same time the doing and suffering of God. There is this connection with the, not just the work of Jesus, but the identity of Jesus. He is not just doing the work of God like we do when we minister in Christ's name to the world. It's not just that. 
but it's that at the very core of his being, Jesus is divine. Um, And let her be here. If Jesus Christ is not God with us, if the life and forgiveness that he offers are not God's own life and forgiveness, if his self-giving sacrificial love poured out for our sake is not God's own love, then he cannot be Savior and Lord. So, we have to confess Jesus is fully divine um, if we are to call him Lord. Because um, if Jesus is just a human and we're, we're calling him Lord, then that doesn't quite make sense to call another human Lord, ultimate, Lord of Lord and King of Kings. There is this sense that to have ultimate authority, to speak into humanity, you have to come from the outside, but be one of us at the same time, holding on to both humanity and divinity. Letter C touches on what we spoke about a few weeks ago. I won't read it in whole, but that Jesus, um, Jesus's life reveals true humanity and true divinity right? We've talked about what does it mean to be made in the image of God? What does it mean to be human? Jesus shows us what it means to be human. And finally, um, the affirmation that Jesus is human, fully human, fully divine, points to this mystery of the unity of his person. The uh, fun theological phrase is the hypostatic union. How is it that Jesus is both this and that, fully human, fully divine? We don't really know. We can't really understand it. But the two natures of Christ are united in one person, hypostasis, without confusion, without change, without division or separation. I will close with this final paragraph, and then we'll pray here. This is from Migliori again. You can read along or listen. Up to you. The mystery of the person of Christ has its proper setting against the background of the Trinitarian mystery in which personhood and communion are inseparable. Being in relationship is essential to being a person. In the incarnation, God freely and lovingly assumes this human life, and this human life freely and lovingly responds to God. And in the history of Jesus Christ, God's freedom for and faithfulness to humanity and humanity's freedom for and faithfulness to God are perfectly united. In him, the perfect love of God and a perfect human's human response are one. Seen from one perspective, God elects Jesus to do, excuse me, God elects Jesus as God's chosen, God's beloved. Seen from another perspective, Jesus is entirely devoted to God and freely subordinates his will to God's. And empowered by the uniting love of the Spirit, true God and true humanity are personally united in Jesus Christ without separation or loss of distinction. I know I threw a lot at you here, but you've got this to mull over for the week. And at least a week, a lifetime. Um, and I know some of it probably sounds archaic. It sounds like, well, that's not really what we care about or we talk about these days. Those are not the hot button issues of the day. And yet, the church, the universal church through history has... Um, argued about, has wrestled over, has come to the conclusions about who Christ is, who Jesus is, and at the core of our faith, that is what we should be asking all the time. Who is this Jesus whom we are called to worship? How can Jesus be one of us? 
How can Jesus lead us to the Father? These are all of those mysteries and questions. And I come back to um, that one line that says, no Christology can exhaust the breadth and depth of the mystery of Christ. We can talk about this forever and never fully grasp the mystery of Christ. And that is why we stand at this door and we peer inside and see as much as God has allowed us to see. But there is so much more. There is so much more to who Christ is, how Christ loves, and we are called to ever um, peer into the mystery. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for your son, Jesus. We thank you, God, for the ways that he came to us as human, as divine, fully united as one person with two natures. God, it is almost beyond our grasp. It sounds too technical, too metaphysical, speculation. We don't know what to make of it, God, but we know that you, through it all, have revealed yourself to us. You came in the flesh so that we could touch you, we could know you, see you, eat with you, that we could be known by you. Help us through all this theological jargon to realize that through it all, you sent your son Jesus to love us. And if there's nothing else that we take away from today, let it be that, that you love us. And Jesus came for us. Jesus died for us. Jesus was raised for us, ascended for us, rules in power for us. And even today, right now, is praying before you for us. We give you thanks, Almighty God, for that vision, that image, that promise that only comes through your Son. We give this day all that we are and say over to you, Almighty God and Father, through the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Oh, 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 come all ye faithful. There we go. Where is it there? True God from true God, light from light eternal. I think I was thinking of, oh, what's the other oh, come 